This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. A top concern in the critical care community is the staffing crisis. Stay tuned for an episode diving deeper into staffing and the ABCDEF bundle. But this episode, we're going to explore what can happen when a team has prioritized staffing for high human touch and focus on the ABCDF bundle and IC rehabilitation. The painful irony is that we need adequate staffing to provide the ABCDF bundle, but when the bundle is not practiced, it increases the burden on staff through high work demand from delirium and ICU-acquired weakness, increased time on the ventilator and ICU, the inability to transfer patients out of the ICU when care facilities are full, and then readmissions to the ICU when those complications from the ICU continue to persist. Throughout the years, I've had listeners reach out and say, quote, I look around my unit and it doesn't look like an ICU. It is full of patients that we've turned into LTAC patients, but we're not rehabilitating them. The LTAC is full, so they're stuck here, but we can't get them out. Yet we're not providing the care that they need to go home and it's burning us out. It is exhausting. This episode, I've invited representatives from Trivent to share with us the incredible example they've set to the benefit to costs, clinicians, and especially patients when an entire team is staffed for and deeply focused on the ABCDEF bundle. Thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast, Philip and Sam. Do you mind introducing yourselves, starting with Philip? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having us. Uh, I'm Philip Morris, and I am the Chief Business Development Officer for Trivet Healthcare. Uh, I've served in previous roles with the company as Chief Clinical Officer, so um, I'll be discussing some clinical aspects of our, of our program today as well. And you're a nurse. You come from a nursing background. I do. I have a background in nursing. Okay, excellent. And Sam? And I am Sam Nima, and I am the CEO of Trivent Healthcare, and uh, uh, thrilled uh, to be a part of this podcast. Thank you so much for having us, Callie. Absolutely. So we met at Chess Conference oh, over a year ago, and I was really impressed by Trivent's outcomes. Um, tell us about what Trivent is and how it came to be. Philip, so why don't you tell them a little bit about what we do, and then I'll go into the how we came to be. Sure, sure. So we've been around for over 31 years, Kelly, and Trivent uh, previously was special care unit. We've rebranded the company now as Trivent Healthcare, but we uh, or our, the people that started the company years ago saw a gap in the uh, in the care for these complex ventilator patients. And that, that gap continues to be here 30 years later. Uh, hospitals have a tough time with these patients. They're very complex. They're prolonged ventilator-dependent patients. Uh, they tend to hang out in the ICUs for an inordinate amount of time, as you as you well know. And to this to this point, and continuing into the future, unfortunately, the only solution for the short-term acute care hospital has been to discharge to LTAC, and they typically do this early on in the ICU process. Um, and while it sounds like a good idea at first, unfortunately, the outcomes for these patients do not 
um, bode well. Uh, these patients uh, across the board and across the country have significantly high readmission rates when they're discharged early from the ICU to the uh, long-term acute care hospital. Uh, those rates usually range in the neighborhood of 35%. Unfortunately, the um, mortality rates for these patients are not good either. Those also range in the 30 to 35% range. So suffice to say about three-fourths of the patients that are discharged early to IC, excuse me, early to LTAC from the ICU uh, just don't do well. They don't have good clinical outcomes. So our company's solution, which has um, proved itself to be a viable solution, is to create an aggressive multidisciplinary unit within the acute care space. And this includes nursing, of course, PT, OT, speech language pathology, respiratory therapy, all working collaboratively within this high touch clinical model. And it's in the acute care space. Therefore, we get these patients from the ICU as soon as possible, put them and collaborate them, uh, or excuse me, collate them into this high touch unit in the acute care space and apply our clinical model. And by doing this, we're able to achieve. Um, and there's a lot of moving parts and, and, and parts to our secret sauce, if you will. But um, by doing this, we're able to accomplish wean rates that are second to none in the industry. We are weaning at 85 to 86% of these patients. And I, I say weaning, we're liberating them. They're coming off the ventilator and staying off the ventilator. Um, our our uh, decannulation rates, meaning we're getting them off, you know, getting the tracheostomy out. Uh, actually exceeds the national average for ventilator weaning. So our outcomes are very good. And um, most importantly, our readmission rates are less than 6%. So we have uh, certainly, I think, mastered this particular uh, solution for the prolonged ventilator patient, and that's what we do. So you took readmission rates that were, you said 30, 35%? Correct. And you took them, you've cut them down to 6%. For those patients in our unit, that's correct. And uh, the, the you know the, the information that we're sharing uh, comes from Definitive Healthcare. Uh, they're a consolidator of data from CMS and other payers. And so this is not just us pulling these pulling these numbers out of the air. These are documented numbers. And um, you know Sam and I have have the pleasure and the um, uh, privilege, frankly, to go around the country and meet with hospitals. And so we see these numbers and they're consistent throughout the country. They're not just in one particular area. Now, some areas are worse than others, but these uh, these numbers, these readmission rates, mortality rates seem to be pretty consistent across the country with regard to the LTAC uh, transfers. I don't think anyone from the IC side sends patients to LTAC understanding that there's a 35% chance they'll come back. Or what? Three hundred percent chance that they'll die out there. You wouldn't yeah. think so, but you can you can imagine that hospitals, case managers, and social workers are under a tremendous amount of pressure to get these patients out of the hospital and shorten their length of stay. And I get that. However, where I would disagree with uh, a particular hospital's thought process would be, I think it's short-sighted. So you can get them out quicker, perhaps, but then you're also looking at 35% of the time they're coming back as readmissions with infections and other complications. So I have families reach out to me sometimes, and a lot of times they're reaching out towards the back end of critical illness, and they're saying they can't get them off the ventilator, they're still sedated, do we go to LTAC, what do we do? And it is a very conflicting situation for them. And then I don't know what to say because I recognize that LTACs are very understaffed. I listen to the details of their cases and I recognize that these patients have a lot of needs. 
they're not still in the critical care phase, but they still need a lot of, you said high touch, right? They need a lot of support, a lot of rehabilitation. And I'm doubtful that they'll really get that in LTAC. So then where do they go? And so that's where you guys are stepping in and bringing in the actual care that they need. So they don't come back to LTAC. So they actually survive and are able to go home. And And the the awakened walking ICU that I come from started basically doing what your team is doing. This is back in the nineties when they didn't have LTAC. They were just starting to experiment with keeping patients with ARDS alive. I mean, they were, they really didn't know what they were doing. And, And so they started a respiratory ICU, but it was essentially kind of like what you're talking about, a step down. They took the patients that could not wean from the ventilator from the shock trauma ICU and then rehabilitated them. And that's what taught them how to do this awake and walking approach because they saw how hard it was, how much work it was to rehabilitate these patients and to actually get them off the ventilator that when their outcomes were so good, like yours are, physicians started saying, well, why don't we send patients directly to that ICU from the ER? And that's when they had the opportunity to do it right from the very beginning. Sure. But it was it was understanding the back end that inspired them to change the front end of critical illness. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you guys really about what you're doing, because those of us on the ICU side have so much to learn from what you're doing, because your patients are still very sick. Um, sure. A lot of times our ICUs can't get your kind of patients out of the ICU because LTACs are full. But the ICUs don't know and don't have the resources to rehabilitate them like you are. So how did you start building this kind of team and process? Well, as Philip said, that the the company's, you know, 31, 32 years old now. And it was started by a respiratory therapist and a patient who had been in a coma and was trached and on the ventilator. Okay. And when when he came out of the coma, they didn't know what to do with him. So uh, that's that was the crux of the 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 founders of this company. Now, Philip and I got involved back in 2014. And, and to, to say that we've, uh, we've kept the, the feel and the touch of the original founding uh, owners, but we were only weaning at 80% of the time. And now we're up to 86% of the time. And, and we're not stopping. We're not, we're, we continue to innovate because we want to get to 100. Sure. You know, Kelly, early, as you know, uh, we talked about this before offline, uh, early mobility is such a huge key for these patients. And hospitals have, you know, they're, and I understand this, they're under the gun to staff officially throughout their hospitals. So as you know, most any large teaching hospital or even medium-sized hospital for that matter, if you stop a respiratory therapist or uh, a member of the rehab team in the hallway and ask them what their patient load looks like that particular day, it's going to be probably north of 15, um, maybe more, maybe a little less. But the point is, is they've got a lot of patients they've got to see each day. So if Miss Smith is in the ICU on a ventilator with a lot of things going on, or that patient may be down in MRI or CAT scan or off the unit for some reason, well, that that uh, that clinician's got to move on. They have other patients they've got to see. So Miss Smith may or may not get therapy that day. It's not the hospital's fault. It's just the way it is. And so we, we recognize that. And so we want to get these patients out of that ICU as quickly as we can. Uh, we don't operate ICUs, so the patients do have to be off of vasopressors. They do have to be off continuous sedation, which, you know, you and I've talked about that before as well, as far as the getting them off the continuous sedation quickly. Uh, but getting them into our unit as quickly as possible so that we avoid those gaps in care. 
by having a dedicated unit that is staffed uh, strictly for that unit. In other words, these patients, uh, excuse me, these clinicians do not get pulled to other units. Then if therapy comes to that room and Ms. Smith happens to be at MRI that day or has something else going on, guess what? They can come back later and do that same therapy. So we're able to provide therapies throughout the day, many times, multiple times a day. And by the fact that we allow our clinicians to really work the full scope of their uh, education and training. You know, we're not judging them and or not judging. We're not um, uh, uh, watching how much they bill per day or how many units they bill per day. The results are based, I mean, or their um, success is based on the overall outcome of the patient. And by having these clinicians work together in such a collaborative fashion, you know, you know each and every day, respiratory therapy, working hand in glove with PT and OT and nursing, so many things that are just regular activities of daily living, like going to the toilet uh, or bathing, becomes a therapy opportunity for these, for these patients. And our therapists are right there, ready to jump in and work with respiratory therapy and nursing to do these types of things. So that's just one aspect of our quote-unquote secret sauce. But I think it's very important, though, that to have a dedicated team allocated to this particular unit, and that's just typically not in a hospital's wheelhouse to do that. So we bring a very unique way of thinking and a unique way of staffing, um, you know, to the hospital. So, Callie, Philip brings up a, uh, he brings up a great point um, about the rehabilitation opportunities. You know, in order for a patient to qualify for inpatient rehabilitation, they have to be able to tolerate three hours of therapy a day, right? But we also know in the acute setting, they can't bill for anywhere close to that, right? So how are you going to get a patient from one to three hours when you can only bill for, you know, some limited amount of time up to maybe an hour a day? Well, by having our team dedicated to the unit and more importantly, by allowing them to be measured by outcomes and outcomes only, we get to turn every uh, patient interaction into a rehabilitation opportunity. As Philip said, patient rings the nurse call button. Now, maybe they've already had therapy for the day. They they ring the call button. I need to use the bedside commode. Fantastic. Let's get OT in here. And we turn that into a rehabilitation opportunity. Every chance we get, that's how you get them to qualify for three hours. And I'm just, I, I just think this is the model that ICU should be following as well. And the barrier to doing that they always say well we don't have the resources we don't have the funding we can't afford it but you're kind of dispelling that you're just proving that right tell us about the financial picture that so you have you don't care about the pt and ot's billable hours right like you're you're not going by each session so how can you afford to do this so so here's the fallacy right a hospital has a making it up uh, 40 people on their rehabilitation staff or 60 respiratory therapists or 10 respiratory therapists, they have to meet the needs of an entire hospital. Okay. And, and, and we respect that. And we know, particularly in healthcare, there has been incredible staffing shortages, uh, especially since uh, the pandemic. So when you have needs all over the hospital, it's very difficult to dedicate staff to a particular unit, unless you outsource it to professionals like us who know what they're doing, 
okay? And now we're staffing it. So if you have a need somewhere else in the hospital, guess what? You can't pull our staff because it's a completely different company. All right. So that that's kind of the magic of how we are able to dedicate the staff. A hospital can say they're dedicating a staff. They can they can try. They can try to. But inevitably, there will be a staffing shortage in some discipline and that they will have to pull uh, from from what would be their respiratory care unit. One study from a CVICU that's now in a walking awakened walking CVICU, um, they took their PTOT um, staffing therapists that were dedicated solely to their unit from two to four clinicians, and they decreased time in the ICU, I'm going to say by 3.6 days. That doesn't surprise me. Sure. And we, we know the repeated studies show that poor care is expensive care. So what are the cost savings that you're you're providing for hospitals by doing it right? Well, so we don't get a full financial look at what we're saving our hospitals. However, um, the uh, Tampa General Hospital actually reported in an article not too long ago that we saved them over $2 million in a fiscal year, uh, as well as uh, UAB Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, documented that we saved them nearly 15 thousand ICU days in just over five years. It, it's it's easy math. Those, that's millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. When you're decreasing readmissions that severely, you're you're, well, you're able to get them out of the ICU sooner. Um, I mean, I told you when I met you that my mission was to run you out of business. Yes. And I encourage, right. I, I encouraged you to do it. I love the work <laughs> you're doing, Callie. I hope that someday uh, the, the 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 world doesn't need us frankly. Well, I think there, there will always be a need for rehabilitation, right? You're always going to have the exception in which patients have to be sedated and immobilized and they do de- get, de- de- get deconditioned and they need rehabilitation. Right now, we have a process of care on the front end in the ICU in which we set most patients up to become that patient. And that's why you're so needed right now. But if we took notes from what you're doing and transferred that into the front end, if we did it right the first time, how would that impact the volume and the kind of patients that you receive? Well, look, like I said, I would love to see uh, a situation where the world doesn't need us, okay? Um, inevitably, if you if you really, truly got early mobility happening in the ICU and we, and we were able to uh, perform the way we do in the Trivent healthcare units in the ICU, I think you'd see a dramatic reduction in length of stay you'd see a dramatic reduction in uh, readmission rates, and you would see a dramatic improvement in the ability for hospitals to wean patients from the ventilator. And, you know, coming from an ICU background, you know, um, I understand the need for the ICU, the various types of ICUs for these types of patients. And they, they're high touch, and for these unstable patients, then that's, you know, that's where uh, the hospitals certainly justify, you know, the the, the, the high touch model, the two to one and, and whatnot. Some have dedicated respiratory therapists, some don't. Um, I don't know too many that have dedicated full rehab, you know, staffs within the ICU. But, you know, the thing is, is that we need these ICUs there for those patients that truly need ICU and the intensivist, I think, would, would, would agree. But then we need to get them out of there. We don't, that's the highest rent district of the hospital. 
So the hospital, these patients don't need to hang out there a day longer than they need to. So the, 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 the function of the ICU is just that, get these patients stabilized and then let's get them out. Let's move them along the continuum and create this space. In your, in your case, it's the walking, the, the, the working, walking, the, the ICUs. The, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's for those ventilator patients. Now you're, you're talking for your units, that would be a myriad of patients, not just the ventilator patients. Mm-hmm. You would have other patients as well. We are laser focused on the trach vented patient uh, that gets, you know, that's already been identified as prolonged mechanical ventilation. They get trached, and then all of a sudden the fatigue factor sets in because all the clinicians, physicians, intensivists, uh, nursing, they've all decided, okay, well, we're going to be in the, for the long haul on this. Let's transfer them out to LTAC. And that's where we've got to change behavior and, and convince hospitals that you're doing the patients, I won't say doing them harm, but you're really not doing what's in the best interest as opposed to creating a place in the acute care space to take care of these patients. And payers need to be understand this too. You know, that's one of the things that we are keenly aware. Payers need to understand the importance of this because we hear more times than not from a hospital, well, the payers don't want to pay to keep them in the in the you know in the acute care setting. But just like I said before, it's in the long-term best interest of not just the patients and their families, but also the payers and the hospitals to create um, units like we're talking about, because it does save everyone money, payers, hospitals, uh, from a financial side to, you know, the improvement in clinical outcomes for the patient and the families. I feel like if the payers, Medicare, Medicaid, insurance agencies, if they really understood delirium, and I see quite weakness. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. This whole billing model would change. Everything would change. They would really start, I mean, we'd have laws change. So there's actual accounting for ventilator associated pneumonia. They would see ICU acquired weakness as a avoidable hospital complication, just like a cotty or a clapsy. Like they would they would be really just from the financial aspect of it, they'd be very interested, very invested and very involved. It feels like they're pretty unaware. It's almost like, well, they they're in the ICU. They were on a ventilator. It's unavoidable. They're going to have to be on the ventilator for weeks or months. And it's going to be an extensive rehabilitation process. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. Callie, let me tell you something. I get really upset when I hear about ventilator acquired pneumonia. That is unacceptable. If, if the minimal care of a patient is taken, there you should never have. We've been in business for over 30 years. We have never had a ventilator-required pneumonia. 
it is ridiculous to see that happening. Because your patients are up. They're mobilized. Well, you, you don't have them yes. just laying supine, sedated, unable to cough, and unable to protect their airways. Like you, the second they come in your doors, that's over. They're up, they're mobilized, yeah. they're just all the precautions are taken, right? But ICU side will say, well, you have better staffing. So if we were to say to provide that kind of protective care, what's the kind of staffing? What what do we need to make that happen on the ICU side? Yeah, Callie, let me let me take a step back because I think it's yeah. it's not better staffing. It's the right staffing in the right environment, right? ICUs, in my opinion, are their intensive care to keep a patient alive and get them stable. Okay. I think once they get stable, that's when Keep in mind, Phil, Phil mentioned earlier, these are trait vented patients that we care for. Not every patient in a NICU or a CVICU or a trauma ICU are trait and vented, right? Mm -hmm. That's where those patients getting consolidated into unit like ours, once they're hemodynamically stable, right? Which is should be the intention of the ICU, getting them stable. Once they're stable, this is where if we staffed every ICU the way we staff the, the Trivent care units, I think it would be inefficient, okay? But our ability to consolidate these patients into one step-down level of care, right, from ICU, and, and put the staffing there, we think it's a pretty efficient model. Um, so, you know, I, I love the... the the work that you're doing with getting the patients uh, mobile early and, and moving, obviously not every patient can do that. Okay. And so the, the multiple comorbidities, super pa medically complex patients that we care for, those are those sort of um, anomalies on every ICU. I do see that the environment and almost like the sign on the door impacts the care. So if someone's in the ICU and they really are stable, but they're in the ICU and they're intubated, that almost blinds our clinicians to really looking at the big picture and saying, why are they sedated? Why are they still intubated? Why can't they mobilize? Because it's like, well, they're in the ICU, they're in an ICU bed. There's a different mentality that comes with that. Whereas when they're in your doors, welcome to our Trivent unit, the expectation is you're going to mobilize. So Having a different environment, I could see there being a benefit. I also feel like we can prevent a lot of tracheostomies by um, mobilizing patients early on. So I think ICUs need to be aware of, this is one thing I'm trying to train them is to, to have those skills to critically think, are they really that critical? Can they really not mobilize? Do we really need sedation? Do we really need these things? But I see with the benefit of the environment where it's like, this is just what we do here. Every patient is going to be up and moving to the best of their ability. Whereas in the ICU, we really have to triage and, and critically think through each patient because their status changes each day and sometimes throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So there is another layer of complexity in that. Yeah. It's interesting, too, as we travel around to see the different thresholds that various hospitals have with regards to tracking a patient. Um, you know, you'll see some hospitals where a patient might have an ET2 for 14 days. I mean, that's almost unheard of, but uh, for 14 days and others, you know, you don't want to be still too long because they'll trach you. <laughs> they might trach you in six or seven days, you know, but uh, it, it's interesting to kind of see that. 
Well, we see in these tracheostomy studies that early trachs have better outcomes. But I invite people to zoom out and look at why is that? Is it really the hole in the neck? Because that's not benign. That's a daily that scar is a daily reminder to survivors of what they've been through. Right. It comes with all sorts of other complications. But is the improved outcome because of the tracheostomy, or is it because that's when we finally take sedation off and get them moving? So I tell sometimes these fans, I'm like, if that's the only way that your loved one is going to get the sedation off and move, if yeah. the team will only do that if they're trached, then you better trach them ASAP. But if you can mobilize them beforehand, get them strong enough to successfully extubate, that's far better than um, even an early trach. That's Shangri-La. We should all strive for that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But if they're trached, they better go to you <laughs> because sometimes they go, <laughs> they get trached and they go somewhere else to park in a very understaffed, um, poorly focused facility where they're not going to get the same kind of care. They're not going to actually get rehab the rehabilitation they need and they end up back in the ICU. And so it's just this expensive circle of death <laughs> that continues to burden our system. So if our hospitals really are understaffed, they're in a financial crisis, whatever, it doesn't make sense to continue what we're doing. And by providing that kind of care, we decrease the the actual healthcare costs that patients are accruing. I also wanted to know about your staff themselves. So we talked about where we've lost a lot of staff during the pandemic. After the pandemic, there's lots of turnover inside the hospital. But what's happening on your units? Yeah, I, you know, during the pandemic, uh, we, we heard everybody was losing respiratory therapists and whatnot. We lost two PRN staff. That was it. All of our full-time staff uh, stayed. And I genuinely believe it's because they get to work through the entire scope of their professional training. They get to come to work and see a patient who, who comes in uh, usually in really bad shape and they get to walk out. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of satisfaction that, um, that a few bucks down the road uh, just can't buy you. I agree. You know, we have in the past, um, and I know Sam can attest to this, when uh, interviewing for a new unit, um, we have had in the past uh, nurses, for instance, that have worked uh, in the LTAC environment. And just telling them about our model and, and how it works and what the ratios are, um, they literally shed tears of joy that they, they're going to be a part of a team that actually does what it says it's going to do. And the respiratory therapists are the same way. They're able to, you know, I've spoken to many respiratory therapists that they just feel like a technician. They're like, we have so many patients to see each day. We go in, we tweak the ventilator, and we've got to get on to the next patient. So the ability to see the patient come directly from the ICU with multiple comorbidities, many times not even coherent or comatose, and to see them walk out or at least go out so, so significantly better to the inpatient rehabilitation unit to see the fruition of their work uh, is just so rewarding. And I think to be able to, to allow them to really spread their wings, as we said before, fully work through the, you know, the scope of their training and, and um, education, um, I think it just provides a rewarding experience that helps us with regards to recruiting and turnover. That is so powerful and really supports what I'm seeing with teams that I'm training. Um, they... I go in there initially and they're burnt out. They're incredulous to what I'm explaining. They're not sure about it. And they it just, the whole unit feels fragmented and they've had high turnover 
and this is something I hope we study later on is how the ADF bundle, how humanizing our process of care, improving outcomes impacts the turnover of staff. But I've heard from clinicians, I was just about to leave critical care. I was so tired of working so hard. I felt so alone and my patients were not surviving or having poor outcomes. I didn't feel like I was doing anything. So why suffer? To I feel supported by my colleagues. We're working collaboratively. I'm connecting with my patients. I feel fulfilled. I see them walk out the doors. Um, I feel like I've actually made an impact and everything is easier and better. And so right now, and during this crisis, for so many reasons, for the patients, for the hospital, for the clinicians, we can't afford to continue to put patients into this death trap, essentially, because we're not going to be able to retain our clinicians when they never get to be fulfilled in their careers, because they're working hard, what they're doing is not the easy way. Sedating and mobilizing patients is not easy. But as you can appreciate, rehabilitating them is not easy either. So prehabilitating them is still work, but it's it's an effective work. It's actually working for the patient. Yeah. You know, it's uh, in the discharge process. And again, as a nurse, I can relate to this, uh, working in a, a very high stress, uh, intensive care unit, level one trauma center, um, and step down units done that as well. And you get these patients that are discharged and moved along the continuum. And, you know, you, you see the relief in a lot of the, uh, clinicians eyes. Oh, thank goodness. They're, they're, they're moving on. They're doing well, but what is amazing. And what is so cool on our units is that we have a graduation ceremony for our patients that move on to, uh, inpatient rehabilitation or home 26.7 or 27% of our patients go home. And that's a huge number considering the high acuity of uh, the patients that come into our unit. But regardless, when they are uh, weaned from the ventilator and many times decannulated and discharged off the unit, either to home, SNP, whatever they're going, uh, there's a big to-do. And um, our, our staff just get so excited about that. And that's one of the big things. I have seen so many tears shed with uh, just the, the the clinicians as well as the patients when they're moving along. And it's true joy to see this patient that has done so well over the last few weeks or whatever to actually get their life back and move on. And then the patients, of course, they come back many times to visit their staff and or to visit our staff. But uh, no, I think that is a huge difference in just the whole mindset of our patients, excuse me, of our staff and the excitement and the fact they get so much involved, so involved in the graduation ceremony with the music and the, you know, we play, play the Rocky theme when they're being, uh, walking out or they're being wheeled out. And, uh, it's just, it, it's just, I would encourage, you know, anyone to, to be part of something like that because it really is so gratifying and so moving. And it's a celebration of the team as well. I mean, they're celebrating Absolutely. the patient and their success, but they're also, the team kind of gets to pat themselves on the back to say, we did it too. We we made this happen. We worked together. We put forth so much effort and it was worth it. Yeah. That's what we're really deprived of in the IC. We get don't always get to see that it was worth it. Well, do you, does Triven only take patients from that specific hospital or can other hospitals in the region send p- patients to your unit because you're such a hot commodity. Can other hospitals benefit from it too? Callie, Callie, you bring up a great point. When you talk about uh, properly staffing ICUs, if you have six or five or an, a large number of ICUs in a hospital, uh, that becomes a little more efficient. But if you only have one ICU in 20 hospitals in a region, can you really afford to staff that the way that you're talking about. What we can do is we can 
we can create a center of excellence for ventilator weaning in one hospital in a region and provide that opportunity for patients across the entire region to come to one hospital for that level of care that they that no one hospital might be able to afford to provide. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm thinking about these ICUs that I've trained. You're still going to have some patients that do need this level of care after the ICU. But now that they understand ICU cord weakness, delirium, all these things, they really have a bigger picture. It's it's so hard for them to let them go to LTAC, to send them out where they don't know they're really going to get what they need. So I'm sure that would be really exciting for teams that get it, that understand to be able to send them somewhere where they know that, that they're going to get the same focus, maybe even better focus on early mobility and delirium rehabilitation um, rather than going to LTAC where they anticipate them coming back to the ICU anyways. Right. So this would be really beneficial for an entire region, even for waking and walking ICUs to have this kind of resource available to them. Yeah, at the end of the day, the social workers and the case managers at these hospitals that are referring their patients out, they want to do the best for their patient. And they, like you said, they don't want these patients to bounce back within 30 days multiple times. They want to make sure that they're referring them out to a facility, to a, a provider that is going to take the best care of their patients. And so that's one of the things that we do in those areas of, uh, where we create a center of excellence is we come in and train those those case managers and social workers in the region to say, hey, there is an alternative here. Um, and once they see the results and the track record that we have, then it makes much more sense for them to send their patients to us as opposed to sending them out to LTAC. And I know it's really hard for families too when they're looking for the next level of care and they go to the centers and they look at the reviews and things like that and they know that it doesn't have the greatest track record. And this isn't to knock on LTACs. I know that people at LTACs work so hard. They pour their souls into it. They're just not staffed well for the most part. So it was really hard for families to know that they're going to somewhere where they may not have the best care, but the ICUs are pushing them out the doors and you have to go. This is the next thing. There's no other option. You can't stay here. So for them to be able to maybe shop around, advocate to go to somewhere where they know that they're going to have good outcomes, where they could have a much greater chance of surviving, not going back to the ICU, being decannulated, walking out the door, independently breathing, who wouldn't bite to the nail to have their loved one go to that kind of facility. Um, and I would always say, and to have that level of care from the very beginning, of course, right. but there's a, there's always going to be a need. So it's, it's comforting to me to know that you guys are working on this and providing this and filling in that gap for those yeah. that are going to fall through the cracks. And I want to make one thing clear too. You mentioned that, you know, LTACs are dedicated and do a lot of things. And, and that's right. And I think I want to clarify, we're not throwing rocks at LTACs and saying that they that they stink with everything that they do. They don't. We are just simply laser focused on one type of patient that the overall track record in this country shows that the LTACs don't um, don't provide the, the best outcomes for laser focus on one type of patient. There's many, many patients that, that require and need that level of service. And we, we get that. So I want to make that clear. We're not, you know, we're not in the business of trashing LTACs overall. It's just that we do a much, much better job with this particular, uh, class of patient than anyone else. And if you are improving their outcomes so much better and you're having a quicker turnover, getting patients out sooner, you're opening up quicker for more patients to come out of the ICU sooner. We're really helping um, 
the bed flow within the ICU, but I'm sure as well as the LTACs, we're not um, setting setting patients there that need so much rehabilitation that they're going to fail, that are going to sit there for longer and then not be able to take other more appropriate patients from the ICU or from the acute care floors. So this is really fixing a problem throughout the entire hospital and the entire system. So this is a, this is really exciting. And especially when they come back, it's demoralizing. And I think clinicians know that when they send them out to LTAC, it's not, not always a big celebration. It's not always the best situation that they're sending them to, but they don't know what else to do with them. Yeah. What else would you share with the ICU community and how can hospitals bring Trivent into their hospital? So I, I would say to the ICU community, I would say, listen to Callie Dayton, first of all, uh, you're doing some incredible work out there and we absolutely love and, and, uh, respect what you're doing. Um, for, for those ICUs that, uh, that, that can't afford or don't feel like they can afford, uh, to implement prehab and, and get all those things accomplished. Um, or if you just, you have such a huge patient population, uh, particularly trached and vented, um, we are the leading organization in the United States in liberating patients from the ventilator period. And we're here to support you. Um, you can go to triventhealthcare.com uh, to learn more about us. Um, or you can look me up, Sam Nima or Philip Morris. I know Philip Morris is a horrible name when it comes to <laughs> liberating patients from the ventilator. I told, I, I've tried to get Philip to change his name repeatedly. He refuses. Um, but uh, but when, uh, when your name is Philip Morris, you better be good at getting patients off the ventilator. That's right. Well, you guys are such a, you're such a testament to that, to the validity and the efficacy of these interventions. Early mobility works. It saves lives. It decreases healthcare costs. It provides humanity and um, fulfillment for clinicians. Um, it works in LTAC. It works in rehabilitation centers. It works in trivent level care. It works in the ICU. And I think if all these level of care um, were to engage more in these elements, we would fix a lot of our big healthcare problems. So thank you for everything that you're doing for patients and for our systems. And I look forward to learning more from you. When you guys have more data coming out, um, keep us posted. We're really interested to know. Most definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Callie. Thank you. Callie, thank you. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com. <laughs>